Podcast world, what's up? Chad Belding back at you. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Gerber. Gerber gear, Gerber blades, Gerber knives, dependability, sharp edges. If you are a hunter, a fisherman, a gatherer, a conservationist, if you're going to build a blind, if you're going to build a fire, if you're going to need something to saw or skin or fillet or cut meat off of the bone, Gerber is what you need. We depend on them every day we are in the field. We love this lifestyle. We love living off the land and it starts with being able to conceal yourself, hide yourself, get those birds close, get that elk close, get that turkey close, whatever animals you're trying to pursue, get hidden and use Gerber gear to use the natural vegetation to hide your face, hide your body. You also are going to use Gerber gear when you're getting ready to prepare that meat, butcher that meat, process that meat and get it ready to serve as table fare, living that provider lifestyle, that provider mentality. Gerber gear helps us be a better provider. And like I said, we depend on them day in and day out in the field, whether we're building a blind or taking that breast meat and that tenderloin off that mallard breastplate. Here we go, guys. The foul life. Today's guest is the one and only Kelly Powers from the state of Tennessee, He sits down with me in Nashville at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention at Opryland, USA. Kelly Powers from Final Flight Outfitters and Power Calls, a great friend of mine and a pioneer, a trailblazer in goose calling, duck calling, waterfowl hunting, entrepreneurial spirit, family man. He's got the total package. Hope you guys enjoy this. And ride with me. In my foul life. Hello, everybody. Chad Belding. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. We are in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA, National Wild Turkey Federation Convention. We've been coming here 12 years in a row, and it is awesome. You get to see all of your old buddies that you grew into the industry with, and that's exactly what I have going on today. I cut my teeth in the industry i got into the industry through competition duck and goose calling and the guy that is sitting with me today was the one that i was chasing we were all chasing this individual he is considered either the top number one or number two if you talk to some people competitive goose caller of all time mr kelly powers how are you my brother what's up man i'm good i'm good it's good to nwtf show is such a good time like you said to see people that haven't seen in a while and it's just a good show yeah, and it's pretty close to where you're from. Yeah, I mean, for me, selfishly, goodness, I've got about a two, two-and-a-half-hour drive, so it's easy right in my backyard. And you know me, I don't travel too much, but this one here is enjoyable to come and hang out with, you know, all the friends and all that. Is is Union City where you're from? Correct. Yep, born and raised, live there now, hope I die there. Uh, just small-town community, you know, grew up in a farming background. Uh, my parents on my older brother's farm. Uh, we do a little excavation work, you know, so... You know, farming and hunting go hand in hand. We'll farm in the summer months and in the winter months. You know, you're duck hunting, and if you miss a day of duck season, it was almost like a sin, you know, of what happened, and that's that's still the culture I grew up around. So it's hard for me to leave home when our season's in as we have our farms that we manage and try to set up. So I'm kind of clinging to family and friends and stay there every day during our 60-day duck season. Is that why you send your brother to SHOT Show in Vegas? Yeah, yeah well, yeah. He, that falls right in the heart of duck season. Exactly. You know, the last time I was in duck season, I saw Robertson, and we saw each other, and he said, Powers, what are you doing here? I said, Robertson, what are you doing here? Because we both knew that our duck seasons were going on back at home. And uh, I said, well, I'm leaving in two days. He said, I'm leaving tomorrow. So, But we both in and out quick and got back home in the duck line. Is, is, um, 
I got to hang with your brother quite a bit this year. You know, he come to our event with Yukonuba, and yeah. he had a blast. Lee Lofton was jamming, and he was fun as heck, man. We, we hung out. His wife was dancing a little bit. Did he tell you about it at all? No, uh-uh. He didn't? Uh-uh. Oh, man, we had a big time. He was, uh, what's that? It's Seth Dorch? Seth, yep. He's a Seth. cool cat, man. Yeah, he does all of our marketing and stuff for our store. Yeah, so you you have several tentacles of the Kelly Powers waterfowl hunting industry enterprise what you will i'm going to just name some of them so people have an introduction to it but kelly is in ownership co-owner and co-founder of a store in tennessee which is a very strong dealer for many manufacturers in the hunting industry final flight outfitters which if you really want to see a success story and built in america kelly that store your catalog is gotten gigantic the store keeps spreading out your staff continues to grow you guys have pretty much zero turnover with the family support and the the family environment and community in the store what what time what time of the uh you know where does that play in the kelly powers when we were coming up together and probably 99 2000 you won the world goose championships which we're going to get into in 1999 you won the world champion of champions in 2000 did did the store exist all the way back then yeah we started you know a lot of how our store got started is is you know i was going to calling contests and and you were going to these events and it seemed like a little bit of a void of what manufacturers were set up for the uh you know at, at these events so my brother actually wanted to start setting up a booth because I was going to be there anyway. So we, uh, some of our first manufacturers were Hignan Decoys, uh, Duck Commander Products. You know, Phil and Miss Kay entrusted us to, you know, to, you know, basically send us items that we sold on their behalf of the Duck Commander brand. And and uh, what we were, what was left over, we would send back. And sometimes we would just keep them and warehouse them. And then in duck season, people would know we would have certain products or certain decoys or certain calls, and we would go and open up our storage trailer and sell them that item. And that's kind of how Final Flight got started. And from there, we developed our, our grandparents had a uh, an older convenience store that was in our community that was shut down, and we used it as a warehouse space. And from there, we started having seasonal hours, and then we started going to you know seven days a week, like how we are now uh, with our catalog and all. But some of those initial companies, I mean, goodness, from Tim Grounds Calls, Higdon Decoys, Duck Commander Products. I mean, it goes on. And then, you know, we feel fortunate to have those grassroots, you know, from that far back. And being involved in calling contests to see, you know, the other brands that emerged from there. You know, uh, you, you saw in those times, you saw Avery grow, uh, you saw Drake grow, then you saw Bandit come on board, you know, and they're big partners of us. And to know Christian and, and, and the guys that are, and, and yourself that are involved in like in that Bandit brand, man, it's, we take pride in it. Even our employees that are, are going to college there, our local our local town, there's University of Tennessee at Martin, and the majority of our, our employee base are, are college students that are passionate about the brand, and they know the brands better than I do. And what we try to do is teach them a little bit of the heritage of how Bandit got started, how the, the personalities that are there, like yourself or Christian Curtis and those other people that helped that has their fingerprints on all of the design stage. And when they kind of learn that, I feel like we can offer the consumer a little more of an informed purchase decision and let them choose what they want to get. So you, the, the store's going on, and at the same time, you're, you're still competing in, in, in some duck and goose calling, but you also are, you know, 
the face of several brands. One of the first brands that I remember you really being a partner with was Under Armour, which is still a strong partner in the store, I yep. assume. Yes. And you you were in the design, you helped design products. I believe it was the Skyscraper series. Yep. And, and you were there at the beginning stages of really when, when, when Under Armour and Kip and, and those guys really got into the hunting yep. niche, right? Yeah, so uh, when, when Under Armour first started printing and camo, and it was it was actually started out with their co-gear line, uh, uh, Tim Harold was the marketing director, and Tim approached me about doing some consultant work with Under Armour, and Under Armour calls them athletes, you know. And uh, so on that first group was around 12 individuals. Um, I was one of the waterfowl guys, and of course Cam Haynes, and you know, and on down the list. Well, that going into that second year, um, the second year it went in, and uh, they cut it back to three. They wanted to concentrate on three core areas, you know, uh, two of them taking up the big game slot, and one of them. In the in, in waterfowl, um, on the big game side, obviously Cameron Haynes, and then uh, Michael Waddell, and then they had myself uh, kind of covering the waterfowl. So, of course, me coming off of just renting the world and and kind of going on that whole tour, I was blown away and humbled, you know, to be a part of a big company like that. Uh, and and still that experience and those friendships with Kip and the guys there uh, are valuable. And 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 goodness, I was with those guys for. You know, while they were doing waterfowl stuff for, what, 10, 12 years, I think at one time they introduced me as their longest longest tenured athlete throughout the whole uh, company at that time. But uh, I a lot of good friends there. And, of course, you know, they went more of a focused on in the last two years of just general hunting and not specific to waterfowl. Uh, and, and that was kind of their, their marketing focus now. And uh, But they still make, as you know, man, we're this industry is on the outside appears big, but on the inside goodness gracious we may be competitors today but we're all friends like you know what and people ask me says well what what about even from the game call standpoint how about so and so calls it's like listen man there it's a ford chevy debate there are outstanding duck and goose calls out there uh, i know those guys bring your calls up here let me tune it if you come to our final flight and want a, a a call it doesn't matter what you want you know we're going to custom if you want it tuned i'll tune it doesn't matter if it's your calls or, or tim grounds call it doesn't matter uh, we're going to tune it to where it fits you, where you're happy. Because at the end of the day, all the designs are, are awesome. Some will do things differently than others, but it depends on the person that's running it behind you know behind the call of how it can be modified to. But but yeah, the Under Armour days were very very beneficial and and a lot of fun. You know, being a part of company and 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 get to see some of their big names guys that they that they affiliate with. And that's a, and then again, I keep saying, and at the same time, you are one of the most trusted credible goose callers in the country because of your 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 experience on stage and you're proving yourself as a hunter now which was always tennessee's not looked at as a canada goose state it's yeah, a duck that's state. right fair enough but but you're in alberta you're in you're all over the country filming and at this time take me through the transition you keep bringing up mr tim grounds mm -hmm. rest in peace tim he Absolutely. was a mentor of yours he was a i don't know if he was a father figure but he was dang close for a while it seemed he literally loved you yeah um, but a lot of a lot of people were, were geared and and tenured, you know, from the Tim Ground School of Goose Calling. But there was there was competition going on. Take me through that stage of your career, Kelly. Of you're competing, you have a, a, a Tim Grounds call on stage, but then all of a sudden, the rich and tone Tim Grounds relationship because of Mr. Butch Rickenbach, rest yep. in peace, Mr. Butch, John Stevens, and everybody, and Jimbo and, and and Tim Grounds are all great friends. 
Tim's from Illinois, they're from Arkansas, and now all of a sudden Kelly has a signature line of goose calls that you're designing with Rich and Co. Take me through how all that goes down. Yeah, so, you know, I started off with saying this, and I and I would love if I come up with this quote, but I borrowed it from somebody. I think I read it on Facebook. or, But, you know, if, 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 an, if you describe the waterfowl community like an oak tree, Tim Grounds was the trunk because a lot of tips, techniques, uh, concepts, and, and goose hunting and duck, like it has his fingerprints on it. Not saying he come up with it, but a lot of times he perfected it or modified it and was credited to it. And if you look at the old back in the 70s and 80s and goose hunting concepts and techniques, especially calling, Tim was very instrumental uh, and, and had a following under him. Uh, and if you look at where those guys are today, goodness, they're some of the best goose hunters I've ever been, you know, had the honor of hunting with and, and learning things from. But uh, starting out, for me, I, you know, I wanted to get into con- contest calling and just become a better caller and a better hunter more, th- more than anything. Um, and and the, first and foremost, I wanted some, some form of employment in the outdoor industry. And as crazy of an idea as it was, I, I told my, my parents when I graduated high school, I thought, goodness, if I could win, let's just say I were lucky enough to win the world, if that would cement my name on a resume to where I'm recognizable from some company you know, owners, well, then if that gives me a leg up on the other person, well, then I'm in. And as crazy as it sounds, that's the path that I took. So I went down that route, won the World Goose in 99, um, and then won the, the Champion of Champions after that. And, you know, for me, the World Goose, I won it on the kind of a beginning of my calling career as far as a big title. Um, and after that, you know, I won big, uh, what the Worldwide was in 2007, you know, uh, later on, you know. Five. And, was it 2005? Yeah, and you something? won that, which yeah. was uh, one, probably the biggest payday in goose call history. Yeah, and and so, you know, and after that, I kind of, you just, you, in some sense, you lose it in your heart, you know, of going to these events and all that. But um, back to your original concept, though, of talking about Tim, all along that whole realm, uh, one common denominator that was with me was, was Tim Grounds, you know, and, and seeing Hunter grow up. And, you know, at the time, Hunter was just a little bitty kid. And, goodness, man, you play basketball together and wrestle and just fun-loving. And, and uh, you could see him develop and, and turn into a monster caller that, that he is. And, and uh, to see that whole process and to be with him, you know, I'm, I'm foreverly grateful uh, to, to Hunter, you know, and, and obviously Tim. And, but going through that, um, about, I want to say, two, 2006, 2007, you know, Rich and Tone, um, and like I said, we're all friends, John Stevens and, and Butch, and just a, it was just a close friendship there. Well, they were obviously making duck calls, and Tim made goose calls. Well, the, Rich and Tone wanted a, a goose call, and Tim wanted a competition duck call, and I don't know, I, I think the design and the idea may have come together over some cocktails that I wasn't a part of, but Tim come to me and said, hey, that, you know, they're wanting to do this, and would you be willing? And, and of course, I was hesitant because I didn't, you know, I wanted to go around the politics behind it because, at the end of the day, man, I, I don't. I want to lay my head down at night knowing I haven't burned any bridges. That we're all, you know, even though we might be a competitor, like, you know, let's be friendly competitors and and kind of have that aspect of it. So I wanted to to try to dodge those hurdles. So that's what Tim wanted to do. So he kind of, I guess, gave gave Rich and Tone his blessings to let me help them design a goose call. So I did some goose call for them uh, and helped start that that process with Rich and Tone getting involved with goose calls and for a facility like Rich and Tone and the, and the infrastructure that they had right there in their in their facility from CNC machines to research and development it was easy and not only was it easy it was fun it was it, it got to where you know designing a goose call for them it, it was pretty fun and and then the people you dealt with with 
with Rusty and John and Butch and Jimbo and like goodness, you know, salt of the earth guys and and uh, a lot of fun times. Uh, and then Tim did his uh, competition style duck call that Rich and Tone helped do. So it was kind of a co-branded collaboration, uh, and that went on for several years. And then we started moving in, in different ways. No hard feelings by any means. It's just as the we both grew, and I started doing some more with Tim. And then Rich and Tone started doing more on the duck side and not as much on the goose side at that particular time. And so they kind of got away from the goose calls there for a couple years. And then now, you know, Sean Stahl, which is a good friend, uh, he's now doing a lot of the research and development on the goose side. And they make some incredible products, you know, with, with his his uh, insight. But uh, so that's kind of the whole collaboration of there. And then went back in with Tim and we did some signature series stuff with the Triple Crown Goose Call uh, that my basically a, a copy of what I was blowing on stage. Um, and kind of grew from there. <clears throat> Tim, obviously, he, you said he's the big part of that, the common denominator throughout your calling career. He made the calls. He helped you know, revolutionize the short read way, short read goose calling, even though he had the guide's best and was a master flute caller and came up with the Zinks and the McCrees and, and, and you know a lot of strong goose calling back in the day. And then it transitions into the short read. And Fred Zink accredited you yesterday on this podcast of being the guy that literally put short read goose calling on the map to a lot of people and 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 the the competition stage is where that started to happen mainly but freddie alluded to it i've heard a lot of people who you won you had a great call you had great mechanics but you had this and when you meet you you don't see this in you but you had this competitiveness that was literally like you barely would say a word during a competition and you were there to win you were there you had everybody loved you you had a lot of all of them were friends with you but you were there to kick some ass and i don't mean to say it like you were there to fight you were there to take home the championship and that's what you went into it so did you grow up competitive were you and your brothers competitive as hell growing up because man there i i don't think that there's been a run like you had like that maybe hunter had one which we are going to talk about hunter grounds but the run you had in the competition game is probably unparalleled. Yeah, a little bit more of a behind the scenes, I guess, that not many people know of other than my family. But um, when I was young, I mean, when I was 12, 12 years old, 10 years old, uh, I got really involved into competitive tennis. Like I traveled all over the whole Southeast trying to get, you know, get nationally ranked. And to do that, you have to attend so many sanctioned contests and or, or so many sanctioned tournaments and this and that. And it, my, my brothers played tennis a lot. And you know, you're dealing with a lot of players that are, that, that are, I mean, have tennis courts in their backyards and private instructors and lessons and all that. But um, going there, those early experiences developed a competitive nature with me that there was a, there's a tennis coach actually, and, and nobody has heard of him outside, you know, other than, than local people kind of in the Mid-South, but Dennis Taylor, he's a, was a tennis coach there at University of Tennessee at Martin. And uh, he, he coached me on lessons. And most, one of the most important things that I learned from him is he made me watch some courses and videos off of mental toughness. And, and it breaks down a person's, you know, what they're going through during a, a tennis tournament and during a match specifically. And not only that, but in life lessons of when you make a mistake, what is your body posture? And reading those body postures of, is his head drop low? Where are his hands? How does hands? And what you do is you see those breakdowns to where when, a, when a, your opponent makes a mistake, and then you capitalize on that mistake and you exploit that. And it basically, it just kind of flips the switch and it turns on a killer instinct. And, you know, in, in tennis, for example, 
you know, to see who starts first, to who serves first, and, and if we're just going to go out and play a hobby match, you know, well, you'll go and you'll spin the racket or flip a coin to see who goes first. Well, you can go, and this is this is part of the whole course that, that they taught me, and a lot of guys that are in competitive sports will, you know, understand this more than I have, but when you start out, you can go a humble aspect and say, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Kelly. How are you? Yep, your name's Chad. Okay, cool. Well, uh, you want to flip the coin or you want me to? How do you want to do this? Well, that's the polite thing to do. From a competitive standpoint, what they train me to do and as other competitors to be killers and to be you know aggressive is to, to come up to the situation like, hey, my name's Kelly. Hey, we're going to have a good match today. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and uh, flip the coin to see who goes first, and, uh, and we'll see how it lays out automatically you have staken and put your foot down on dominance that you're you're in charge here and mentally what that sends into your competitor's mind of like oh god this guy's this guy's has done this a lot he's probably experienced you know so you've already mentally beaten the person you've already mentally got to step up before you even the match has even started so those early experiences and them forcing me to watch those videos and to try to analyze body you know translate it over into the goose calling side of things and as crazy as it sounds when you go to a you know, and there's a ton of different scenarios, but for example, um, one of the things that I've always done is, and, and, and goose calling is, you know, you're allotted a warm-up. Well, your warm-up period is around 10 to 15 seconds. That is technically, it is not being judged. You know, they'll say, caller number one, do you like a warm-up? You just nod your head, and then you start your warm-up. Up in, when I started calling, everybody would blow just a couple notes and then nod their head, okay, judges, this is for score. And then they go into the score part of the routine. But I always felt like there was a 15-second period that is a missed opportunity to get the judges on their, you know, edge of their seat to say, oh, this guy's good, this guy's the one that's, you know, I need to pay attention here. And there's different aspects to looking at mentally. So, you know, from a contest standpoint, the judges are going off the element of sound only because they can't see the caller. So they can't visually see how confident you are on stage, but they can hear it with what you do through the call. So by, by doing these little things on the warm-up, what that allows you to do is I had a mini routine that I had in a 10-second routine, and I always analyze my routine and think different parts of it that would probably score me better than the next guy. Well, I want to exploit that. I want to bring that out in my warm-up. And the biggest things I want, the reason for that is, let's just say you go through the first round, you do normal, you call in well, you know, well, then you go to the second round, all right, and all of a sudden, if you get to the second round and you draw the bullet, you draw caller number one, which statistically speaking, if you draw number one in any event, if, if it's probably going to score less than a later number draw. And that's just statistics of analyzing no matter what you do. You know, if you're in a call-off with two callers and you're caller number one, generally caller number two gets a little is, is a little bit of a statistical advantage whether he's a better caller or not. And I'm not interrupting you, but yeah. I want to explain in, in competition calling, you got pills in a hat and you're back in the bullpen and you are with all the other callers and the, they walk around and you you pick a pill. Happens in a law contest, even up to the World Duck and Stuttgart. The bullet is what you're referring to. Yep. And this is where I was going with this question. I'm glad you're hitting on this because it did not matter if you got the bullet, which you had before. Yep. It didn't matter. And that is almost a, a game changer for a caller. And it happened to one of your good friends, a guy that you taught how to call, the guy that, you know, He's won the World Goose the past two years, Kyle Jones, on your yep. power calls. He drew the bullet this yep. year in Maryland when I was there emceeing it. You taught him that yeah. it didn't matter. Now tell me about that, what you're hitting on so with So this the is bullet. what it doesn't matter. So let's just say, all right, I draw the bullet second round. And, and I've told Kyle this hundreds of times. 95% of contest calling is mental. 
And and I don't, I, you know, unfortunately, I don't think you'll hear anybody else say that because they don't understand the mental aspects of it. And maybe this is where I get weird and crazy and twisted in my head of analyzing this, and I'll probably overanalyze it. But you draw the bullet in the second round. My philosophy is this: I'm winning this thing. Why am I winning it? Well, I'm probably winning it because of what I do in my comeback, or I'm probably winning it because of this spit note, or I'm probably doing it because of my laydown. Whatever it is you do, why are you winning this? If you have that mindset in your head, well then, okay, now how am I going to exploit that? Now I've identified why I'm probably winning it. It's probably my little end. For Kyle, I think it's probably his little ending notes that he does. He does it only about twice. It's only two notes in his whole 90-second routine. He does it at the very end in his laydown work. So what Kyle does is he takes that little warm-up period flips it, turns it into a psychological advantage with the judges. He'll start his warm-up with that little niche note of, in his mind, is thinking why he's probably winning it. So what that does in that judge's mind, when you have the judges behind the curtain, they're thinking, how's the family doing at home? It's a little dead time. The next caller's getting ready to come to the stage, and they're getting ready to start the second round. All of a sudden, when they hear that little note, that on paper, that they wrote notes about from the first round, all of a sudden they go, oh, here's my winner. Here's my guy I've had in the lead. If you come across with if they if they have that thought, you've won the contest. You're already in that judge's head. You've already got them listening and 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 you've already got them on the on the edge of their seat. Now where it can backfire on you is if you don't bring it. If you disappoint them or you mess up in the very beginning, well you're done. Because you've already got it, you know. But by letting them know, in my opinion, the way I've always done it is hey, I'm the guy you got winning. The reason you got winning is because of this little note that I, I that I exploit in that little 10 second warm up period. Now sit back and enjoy the show, and that's kind of a and, and I know it sounds cocky and arrogant, but that was my mentality on stage. Like I'm I'm bringing it. You better you better have your A game, you know. And, and this is what I'm going to do and, and try to call mistake free and and just always push it to the edge. Um, and that just a little bit of a psychological aspect of how I always analyze contests. You know, you said something right there that's important because I know a lot of professional athletes, college athletes, are the sweetest people on earth, both male and female. You get them in a competition and they want to rip your head off. And if you're not in it to rip somebody's head off when you're competing, you're yeah. in it for the wrong reasons. Yep. Because competition is exactly that. There's no participation award at the World Goose. You travel all these miles. You practice all these routines. You discipline yourself. You get it down to a time. You you work on notes. You enter notes you literally trailblaze notes in the goose calling game we will get to the spit note but you can't go into it going oh i might be arrogant i might be cocky you never treated anybody like that no you're a sweet man but when you got that was my whole point in going down this road powers is that there was a a, a button on you that when that contest started it was over for a lot of it. and if you listen to quotes by mike tyson back in the day he'll tell you he beat 95 percent of the people in the ring before the first bell of the first yep. round was wrong and that's and that goes into my warm-up philosophy of something that's taking something that's not technically even being scored and, and mentally getting in people's heads and winning that and and that's that that's helped that's kind of one of the things that I felt like I always did differently was analyze things and and I always use this quote with our employees at, at, at the store and, and whatever is you know it's okay to be wrong in life but be confidently wrong you know if you're timid and uncertain and that especially goes in with with hunting you know if if you're doing a a, a, a cut on a turkey or you're yelping at them or clucking apart whatever if you're not displaying confidence in your ability of running that call, well, then it's you're not selling what you, you know. They're not going to buy what you're selling, you know. But if you're confident and blowing that goose call in the field or blowing that duck call, you know, whatever, it's demanding. 
you know, and, and same thing on stage. If you're a little timid, those judges sense that. They sense nervousness. They can they can hear it, and, and you're not going to score as well. But when you're confident, like, hey, I, I don't care. And I tell guys when they walk on stage, I said, listen, you know, they're at, and I, overcoming nerves. I said, all right, here's the deal. First round, when you go up there in your warm-up, first thing I want you to do is trip yourself intentionally and fall on your face. They're like, what do you mean? I said, it can't get any worse than that going forward. If you do that in the very first contest you ever call in, it'll never get any worse. You'll get over those fears and, you know, let everybody laugh at you. Who cares? You know, it's you and those judges, and, you know, and you're fixing to win it, and that's just kind of the killer instinct, you know, to have to have. Um, But those little things, and another thing, too, by calling, if you have that mindset and and calling confident, and and I, uh, good friend Chris Parrish, you know, in in his illustrious career in turkey calling, we we talked – Years ago in a, at a Memphis show, I had to do some seminars, and he was doing seminars too, and we talked about what they have to do on the turkey side, and I was talking about what they have to do on the goose side. But what these turkey guys have to do to not be able to have warm-ups is so challenging. You know, and it's another level of talent that we never had to do. You know, we, we got a little warm-up period, a little cheater period, and that's why I so admire what their, their ability. But one thing for me, um, by having just a similar confidence level, is if you make a mistake, you cover it up and you take a mistake that judges will perceive as a mistake and an accident, but turn it into like, that's not a mistake, that's what I'm meaning to do. You know, uh, the U.S. Open, I'm, I'm gonna say it's in uh, 2003 maybe, uh, I was in the lead big going into the final round. Um, and uh, the final round, man, right in my comeback, I stuck it, it was a, it was a spit note push, and I just, I, I stuck it. Like it was, a, it was supposed to be a drawn out spit, uh, and I got through halfway through it. I mean, and it locked up. Well, you know, a lot of people would have probably just walked off stage, their head would have got to them, or they would have just kept on going with the rest of their routine. Well, in my mind, as soon as I stuck it, I thought, how, how can I turn this into letting the judges know that I intended to do that? So my first time that I stuck it, the second time I did it right, the third time I stuck it intentionally, the fourth time I did it right, and the fifth time I stuck it intentionally again to turn it into somewhat of a goosey note and push my way through that stick. And I ended up winning the contest. I, st- I won the third round as well. And I'll never forget coming backstage, good friend Richie McKnight said, uh, you intended to do that. That's You sorry, sucker. you know. And I was like, man, I just, you know, in the, in the spur of the moment, you have to cover it up and you have to get in the judge's head and, and I had two judges come after the contest. They come to me and they said, hey, uh, and you're come back. And they were a little questioned. And I just kind of grinned. And I said, well, I kind of I meant to do that, you know. Uh, and there are contests that you shouldn't have won. And that one there was one that I felt like I used to my advantage. And then there are contests that, that you may have should have won. And that happened to the other guy. But it all shakes out. And that's just using try to be confident. And, and uh, were, you just, ever, were you ever you, confident is key. Were you ever intimidated? Because when I say this, you were going against the best of the best, from Tim to Foyles to Stahl to Big Sean to Field Hudnall to, I mean, Josh Newweiler, you name it, Sean Mann. You've, beat them, you've beaten them all. Okay, there, there's a handful of goose callers that can say that. You've beaten them all. Hunter Grounds, you've beaten Hunter, who is the other guy that I started this off with saying that you're one or two. He's the other one, in my opinion. Yep. He's amazing competitor. Absolutely. Amazing. You beat him lots of times. So were you ever intimidated when you go into a, a show or a contest and you saw who was yeah. who was entering it? Did you ever get nervous? Or One of the first contests that I did well in was Illinois State. Uh, I was in the league going into the final round. Or, or it might have been after the first round anyway. But it was a deal where they had the, the scores posted so you could see what score, you know, how you were doing as the contest progressed. 
and Alan McCree at the time was just dominant. Alan's the one that is is like, I mean, he was king in every contest you went to. So after that first uh, round, and I'm in the lead, Alan McCree comes over to me, and and, and Alan is, is one of the soft of the earth people, super nice. And of course, he had he had no in, ill intentions of this, but Alan comes up to him and is like, "Boy, Kelly, man, I've been hearing a lot of good things about you. You're sounding really, you know, really, really good." Of course, he's just killing me with humbleness and kindness, just how he is. Mentally, to me, it like. Goodness gracious! I got it. You know, it flipped my world upside down. I was a wreck, and Alan went on and won the, or, or actually John Pasoni, I think, won that contest, and uh, and I think Alan was second. But man, I, I just I, I blew horrible the third round, and that was a life lesson to me that like you know what I belong. I'm here, you know I can do this, uh, and and just tried to block out the mental noise and just just worry about it. it's me. You know, all these guys are dear friends. I do anything in the world for them. They do anything in the world for me. But when it comes on stage, hey, man, I'm, I'm here to win, you know, but as soon as this thing is over and if they announce me in second place, I'm giving you a big old hug for winning and we're going to go out and have dinner and we're going to have fun, you know. Yeah, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, that gummit, I, I know I can beat that guy. I would have judged it this way, you know, all that. But I keep those thoughts to myself because at the end of the day, that's, that's just my opinion. And in Goose Calling, you know, there's five opinions back there, whatever. So you let the chips play out and you go to, go to every event and you try to just be consistent with what you do. and That's where and I failed as a competition goose caller because I had the guts to get on stage. I didn't care if it was Powers or Trinan or whoever. That's right, yeah. I mean, I competed in the worldwide, got fourth, which was amazing that's to good. me. Yeah, no. But I'm not bragging. I'm saying this. What failed me is that I went against the, the – and, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, Kelly – you can't worry about your competition in business. you got to get up and put your blinders on and focus yep. on what you're doing. As soon as you start trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, you're going to get lost. Absolutely. And you're going to get left behind. And that's what I did as a competition goose call. Oh, my God, I can't do a spit note like Kelly. I can't do a train moan like Doesn't matter. And that's where a lot of goose callers fail is that they're they're standing in the in, on deck and John Stevens is on stage and stuck on, I'm on deck. I was 100% beat, eliminated in the first round before I hit my first note of my warm-up because I go, oh, my God, I can't come anywhere near that. When I should have just been like, go do you yep. and let the judges sort it out. And a good example of that is good friend Scott Trinan. You know, we go way back and, and, and call together in two-man teams and, and won the two-man world together. When, when I was done at the world and when Scott come on board, and he come on board kind of when I was, you know, toward the end of when I was calling, but, you know, Scott won the world live goose three years in a row. Just and, and, and the guys that know Scott well, Scott is a finesse caller. It's what he does the best. Like, he is unreal finesse calling. You know, as far if you were to say, hey, go do a bunch of fast stuff, whatever, well, he's not going to be in the top two or three best callers in the world of going fast and speed. But he, so, and I always told Scott, I said, it's okay. Only show them what you do best and highlight that and let's water down the rest. So, like, your fast stuff, don't get like get into it just a little bit and then boom back out of it because if you keep elaborating on that and ex, ex, you know prolong that period and that fast section of calling it you know it's going to show weakness it's going to display a little weakness on your routine and it's not going to score as good so do what you have to do to get in it and then get out of it so have more emphasis on finesse and all that goodness gracious he's got such a bright mind he comes up with little niche notes and sounds and all that and it's what he does best he sta- and I always use this term a lot just stay in your lane know what you do best stay in your lane and become an expert at it Scott Trina did that with with his finesse calling won three world live news calling titles that that were I mean just ran away with them you know and it have, showed have you ever met a goose caller that you didn't necessarily think was born with that killer instinct can it be taught was Kyle Jones born with the same killer instinct yeah. that Kel- he was? Yeah. 
is there anybody that you can think of off the top of your head that might not have had it? Oh boy, that's good. Hunter, I don't know if you, I don't know if you I don't can know. teach it, right? No, I, I think there's a lot of it. Is probably you're born with it, you know. And and a lot of those lessons may come in the competitive nature when you were growing up. Um, no, Kyle has it. You know, sometimes with Kyle, you know, he called in, in just this last year. He called in a, a event before the world, and it was like a team event or whatever. And and his fiance was sitting beside me, and after he got done calling, she looked at me and she said that was horrible. And I said, yeah, I said I we he's got to have some energy or something he's just like a dead weight up there what is he doing you know and this is before the world group started and i saw him right after that and i was like dude you sound awful like what is wrong with you like either i've got a slight you know and before hunter grounds won his first world title you know he'll tell you i basically grabbed him and slapped him around i mean not you know not i mean playfully you know like try to get him pumped up like you go win this thing go do what you do and you go win it don't worry about anybody else you're the best up here you go knock the doors down and you win it you know and uh having that mindset and getting that guy pumped up, forget everybody else. Because at that time, you know, your friend, and I told Kyle this, you're humble off stage. You're going to, you're friends with all these guys. That time is over. Now it's time to go up there, kick butt, take names and win this thing, you know, and I went, how, how good is he? He's good. Like, he's how, good. Tell me like what, because when I was on stage this year, watching him as the MC, he did exactly what you just described in his first round came out almost a little sluggish and he's defending the world title yep. and i and i don't know if i've made eye contact with you or his fiance but i kind of got that same feeling oh, that yeah. he's not on and he he did something to where i did not have him winning that contest until the very last round yep. but this why is he so good what separates him well a lot of things because he did draw the bullet this yeah, year yep that's right i i told him when he first started i said listen if you're serious about this i'm gonna push you and, and I'm going to make you mad, and I'm going to tick you off, and it's okay. Because here's the deal. If I were to come out of retirement today, I would want an accountability partner is what we call them. I would want somebody pushing me. I would want somebody doing the same thing for me, not telling me what I want to hear, telling me what I need to hear. And I said, here's the deal. We can go at this solo. You can do your thing. I can do my thing, and the chips are going to lay like they are. But when you put your head together and my head together, it's going to become unstoppable. And I said, so, goodness, for – Four years now. I mean, it would especially the. I mean, I'm getting routines every day, and I'm offering suggestions. Do that, and I said, listen, I've got a. There's a proven formula here. If you will go by this, and and if you take 50 percent what I'm telling you, and then you apply the other 50 percent on your own and your own ability, it's, you're going to do big things. You know, and you saw it with Hunter Grounds. You saw, you know, Robbie Iverson went correct. You know, there's a set formula there of different things. Kyle, starting out, I said one thing you have over anybody else is a physical nature like Kyle's a great big old dude he he work out you know he's a he's a physical train you know he trains people at the gym that's what he does you know also for a living on the side like he's constantly lifting weights working out is a strong guy so he has a lung capacity that's different than someone like me like he's got the power that he can do a lot of things but what he also has that way better than I have is is he can get soft and really finesse on a lot of the low stuff uh, that's really his specialty, you know. So what I'm trying to do is trying to help him on where I feel like his weaknesses are on some of his speed and mental toughness and putting those pieces of the puzzle together under the same prescription formula to win. And Kyle's applying his flair and then look at him, you know, two back-to-back world titles, Amazing. you know. And, and, and not only that, but, man, you saw it with, with past world champions, with Robbie, with Hunter, and you go on down the list, Wade Long, you know, Good, humble guys doing good things is enjoy, and I told Kyle this, it's enjoying to sit back, cross your arms, and enjoy the ride. It's a blast to watch. If you can be a part of it, it's even better. 
I love being on the sidelines, whether I'm a, a friend, a coach, what I love to see it, you know, especially good, humble people, and Kyle's one of them. You know, when he wins, he's gracious in victory, and he's gracious in defeat. And and that's one thing that will always that'll go to him, and, and I'm t- tickled to death about him. And, I mean, it's just almost like if your own son wins, you know, um, that how, how excited. This year when you announced, you know, we were on stage, and, and uh, um, you asked me to stay on stage when they started announcing the world. And, you know, when Mike Eddy comes and he does all the scorekeeping for people that don't know, but and he walked by me with the score sheet, you know, and, and I see Kyle's name on the top of the list, man, it hits home. I mean, you kind of tear up a little bit. And, and because you you know the blood, sweat, and tears that are put into that and how much time that he's put into that. And, and also in the back of your mind, you probably know, all right, there's been a little bit of doubt, you know, three years ago when this process started of, okay, is, is Kelly for real when he says do this or is he for real, you know? And when you see all that play out and now you see a guy, not when it once, but you see it two years in a row. And, and with Kyle, he's just getting started. Now he sees his own potential and he's starting to gain more of that inner confidence that you saw with Hunter Grounds. And goodness gracious, Hunter is one of the most confident guys you'll know on stage. Like, you know, I mean, he, well, he's, he's a competitor. I mean, he's tough. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to get into Hunter, but I want to add a question on I don't think, you know, I've had some success in the waterfowl industry, and I and I love it, right? I don't think I would have ever had it if it wasn't for competition calling. I truly don't think I would have, and I, and I want you to talk about that, but I want you to allude to the fact, and, and tell me if I'm wrong again, Powers, is that what happened to goose and duck calling competitions? What, there was a, we were in the heyday of it, man. We, we had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity from the Winchester to the U.S. to the Worlds to you, the Sportsman's Warehouse Contest and, and, and meat call. I mean, there was tons of it. You're a smart cat. You're on the inside of this. I don't know if you or I would be where we're at without it. Without a doubt, no. And what happened to it? You know, it's a sad deal. I don't. I think a lot of your your kids growing up today aren't. They're not tuning their own calls like we would. You know, I see guys even at the contest today. They're they're giving their calls to other guys that to tune it for. Like it blows my mind. Like, I mean, when I was in high school, like I forget high school. Heck, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, like I was destroying duck and goose calls. Like I want to understand the physics behind it. If I cut a reed this way, if I shave it this way, if I shave the tone board here, if I do that there, like what does it do? You know. And, and one of the first calls that my brother liked, and I think I might have been 9 or 10 years old, he loved it. It was an old – I can't even remember the, the brand of goose call. But I took it apart, and, I mean, I totally messed this call up. I had no business doing this. He got so mad at me. But it was one of those deals where I wanted to understand the physics behind the call. I wanted to understand the physics behind the design, what it's doing. Kids today aren't doing that. They're playing video games. They're doing that. They're not trying to understand the mechanism of how a call works. And if, if you – if you analyze contest call, callers today, specifically goose callers, now I'm, I'm going to show my bias here, but you want to talk about some smart individuals. You know, uh, you look at Harold Knight, won the World Goose, started Knight and Hell Calls with, with David, a successful company that with turkey calls all across the whole industry. You know, Sean Mann, won the World Goose, successful company. Yourself, go Fred Zink. You know, Fred didn't win the world, but look at look at look at what Fred's done with AVNX with Zinc calls. Like, you know, it, a goose caller comes on board in the 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 turkey world. You know, he takes guys that you know Fred turkey hunted when he was young, but not a whole lot. But he was a goose. He's a goose caller at heart. We know where his roots are, and he gets guys that are successful 
puts them in positions where they can succeed on his team, you know, and watch them blossom. Matt Moret, different guys that he got on his team, and then look at what, you know, Avian X and Zinc Calls has done in the turkey side. Look at what Harold has done on that side. As you can tell, I had to abruptly stop Kelly Powers. He's in mid-sentence, and I stop him because the noise at the NWTF convention in Nashville, Tennessee, it got out of hand. It got busy. Our booth got really busy with the jargon duck calls. You can hear them behind us, and I just called it, and we are going to continue this conversation in part two of Kelly Powers from Final Flight Outfitters, Power Calls, 1999 World Goose Calling Champion, 2000 Champion of Champions back in Easton, Maryland. He is an absolute stud and a great friend of mine. So he is going to have part two coming up very soon on the Foul Life podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed his story so far. I'm excited for what is in store for us down the road with Kelly Powers. He's got so much more to tell us, his ideas on business, his his past, the present, and where he's going with his brand right now. He is a, He's just a true waterfowl specialist. He's a pioneer. He's a trailblazer. And like Freddie Zink said on the Foul Life podcast, Kelly Powers is responsible for the short read revolution, even though Tim Ground, which you heard Kelly talk about, it pretty much started it. Kelly was right there in the midst of it, and he made the short read goose call that famous, that popular, that powerful. So, uh, again, it got too noisy there in Nashville at the NWTF convention, Nashville, Tennessee, but we're excited to have part two. Hope you guys enjoyed part one of Kelly Powers. This has been another episode of the Foul Life podcast. Tom, hit that button. This is 2 a.m. Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. You can find it right now on iTunes. Thank you all very much. Yeah.